You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans? And that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world. How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. In 1735, my ancestor, Mother Leeds, was pregnant with her 13th child, and it said, under the pain of birth, of labor, she cried out, let it be the devil, and so it was. The creature, the baby was born normally at first, but then metamorphosed into this dragon-like creature. In some accounts, you know, the creature sort of uh, thrashes everyone in the room, in other accounts it kills the women who are attending the birth, and then it flies around the room and out the chimney and into the night. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith. As you can probably tell by that teaser from the television show Lost Tapes, today's topic is the Jersey Devil. And we have a great interview for you with a scholarly fellow who, if memory serves, is our first three-peat guest. From the History Department of Keene University in New Jersey, we once again welcome Dr. Brian Regal, who previously joined us on Monster Talk to discuss the demise of the werewolf at the hands of Charles Darwin and the history of cryptozoology and the relationships of credentialed scientists and amateur enthusiasts. Brian is an historian of science with a specialty in human evolution and its relationship to religion, politics, and American national origin theories. He is the author of Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology, which just came out in a much more affordable paperback edition. Check the show notes for a link. Monster Talk. Welcome back, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's it's great to have you back. You've uh, I think you were our fifth guest I mean, uh, when we very first, very first got started, and then uh, you've been back to talk about your book. And uh, I've kind of followed your work, and uh, you just out of the blue surprised me with this work you've done on the Jersey Devil. So, so when did you become interested in the Jersey Devil? Uh, well, I guess I always was. You know, as growing up in New Jersey, you hear the story early on, and it's you know it's it's very fun, and um, 
but about, oh, I guess back in the winter, right after Hurricane Sandy came through and laid waste to most of the Garden State, and uh, we were... Uh, we were out of uh, out of power for over a week, and uh, when Fauna came back on, I had a lot of TV watching to catch up on. And there was, um, I think, it was Monster Quest or one of those shows. They were doing a, a an episode on the Jersey Devil, so I figured well, I'll sit and watch this. And as I watched it, it just made me angry because they were putting forward such such crap. <laughs> <laughs> You know, n- not research, just the you know, like a like a televised version of Wikipedia, and uh, I I yell at my TV a lot, and I started yelling at my TV, and um, I said, you know, I, I'm I'm going to have to look into this, and so I decided to what I needed to do was to do a complete reassessment of the entire Jersey Devil legend, and so uh, as a historian. Uh, your first instinct always, and this is how you get trained in graduate school, uh, where are the documents? Look for the documents. Look for the correspondence. Look for the lost papers. Uh, you know, look for the notebooks. Look for the, the lost publications. And so I just started digging and doing what historians do, and very easily, very quickly, I came up with all this material, and I said, no, why hasn't anybody done this? Why, why are there people running around the Pine Barrens, thinking they're going to find this thing. There's nothing out there to find. Um, hey, hey, legend. hey. <laughs> you can't just jump into <laughs> conclusions like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've already gotten some interesting correspondence over this, uh, which is which is what I expected. Um, well, do you, you know, this is, I, I sometimes make the assumption that uh, with some of the more well-known monsters, that everyone who listens to the show knows what these creatures are. Right. But, but let's let's talk about the the monster legend for a minute before we go okay. into the actual history. Sure. What is the legend of the Jersey Devil? Okay. The the accepted um, standard legend is this: <clears throat> in 1735. Outside of Burlington, New Jersey, in a huge forest that is known as the Pine Barrens, a witch named Mother Leeds gave birth to her 13th child. And as the child was breaching, she screams out, oh, let this one be a devil. And what comes out is not a baby, but uh, a thing with a horse-like head, uh, bat-like wings, a long tail, uh, cloven hooves and claws. It uh, it yelps menacingly at the 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 astonished, dim-witted, dull-witted family who is standing there watching, and then flies up the chimney and out uh, and disappears off into the forest, spending the next several centuries uh, accosting any uh, passers-by that happen to encounter it. No, no, just is so that's is, the basic I, story, right? And as there I are understand, variations it, on it, but that's the basic story. It's a, um, it's not like Bigfoot or a lot of the other cryptozoological creatures in that it there's no uh, population of these things. It's just one, right? Right. It's it's not really. Uh, it doesn't conform to the generally accepted definition of a cryptid. Yeah. Exactly. So, so who is this Leeds family that that they're talking about? Well, in the legend, um, they are 
a kind of backwoods hillbilly family uh, living a kind of detached life from the rest of civilization. Um, when people think of New Jersey, they think of Bruce Springsteen, they think of the Sopranos, they think of the sort of last 20 miles of the turnpike uh, in the northeastern part of the state, which is very urban, uh, very industrial. But the lower half of the state, is, it's, it's essentially a separate state. Uh, South Jersey. It's very uh, agrarian, very forested, very bucolic, and there's a huge swath of pine forest that extends from the Atlantic coast, uh, from Atlantic City all the way over to Philadelphia. Uh, and it's quite uh, an enormous uh, tract of land and rather thick, uh, and as it's called the Pine Barrens, uh, and it's not heavily populated. Uh, and so the Leeds family were denizens of the Pine Barrens, and the, the Pineys, as they're sometimes rather unfortunately referred to, um, even to this day, are, are supposedly like backward people who live in kind of hovels and, you know, um, uh, not part of, of the mainstream. And the, this legend builds upon this kind of stereotype. And the Leeds family was one of these one of these backwards families who were vaguely uh, thought of to be into the occult. And uh, Father Leeds was sometimes depicted as a drunk, sometimes as a ship uh, a disgraced ship captain. And so the, they they sort of in the legend they conform to every stereotype of kind of uh, dull witted backwards people. But they're not—they're not as sophisticated as, as like your Snookies. Well, <clears throat> the, we could—we could probably do a whole other segment just on that. Uh, that they might be the modern equivalent. Uh, but the reality is that when this whole story begins, the actual there really is a Leeds family. Uh, there are still people in New Jersey, still people who live in the Pine Barrens, who are descendants uh, of the Leeds family. So they never really went away, but. What I found was that there's this transformation that takes place, which is fairly common in folklore. Uh, not only does the Jersey Devil itself transform from a normal child into this sort of hideous monster, but the legend transformed the Leeds family uh, from one form into another. The, the form they get transformed into is, again, like I said, this kind of dull-witted um, backwoods people. But the really fascinating reality is that the Leeds family in the colonial era were civic leaders. They were erudite, educated. They were uh, part participants of the scientific revolution. They thought they were bringing astronomy and mathematics to the new world. Uh, and they were the complete opposite of the stereotype uh, that they're that they're portrayed of as uh, in the in the legend, and far from being um, sort of dark occultists, they're actually quite uh, active Christians. They start off as Quakers, and then they become Anglicans. Okay, so so here, so again, wanting to kind of set the framework. I love the way you did this research; it's really good. So, and it's going to be published very soon in Skeptical Inquirer. It looks like yeah, there's there's a, a kind of short, popular version coming out in the next issue of Skeptical Inquirer. That's what they tell me, the September-October issue. Yeah, quite and, a good story. And then there's a, a much longer, the peer-reviewed version will be coming out in a journal called New Jersey History, 
and that's supposed to be the October-November issue. And I have to say, uh, as peer review articles go, that was really an excellent read. I mean, Thanks. It, it, it was it was uh, completely accessible to someone as ignorant as I am. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, the the culture at the time. So wh- first of all, what time of uh, American history are we talking about? Roughly when this, uh, the real Leeds family lived there. We're talking about the late, uh, 17th and early 18th century. So that's the 16 and 1700s, right? right? <laughs> yeah. See, I got it. All right. So it's always, it's always one head. Exactly. So who were the Quakers besides their delicious oatmeal? What else did they do? Well, the, the Quakers were, they start off as British, uh, nonconformist religionists in when the, in, in the midst of the British Civil War. Um, they sort of reject organized religion and organized authority and decide that Christianity, to their mind, uh, as it was being practiced by the Anglican Church in England, really wasn't doing justice to, to God and to Jesus, and so they decide to break away and form their own uh, sect. They're originally called the Friends, uh, but because part of their theology is that each individual burns with an inner light, the inner light of God, and this inner light causes people it, to behave in some certain ecstatic ways, and they shake and they they move around the the meeting house, and uh, detractors said, well, they're quaking uh, with with the Lord, and, and that was meant as a, a as an insult, uh, but as Often happens in these situations, people who are called something as an insult will adopt that phrase to take the insult out of it. So even they start to refer to themselves as Quakers, but they were always originally known as the Society of Friends, and but, so they were basically a Christian offshoot. And um, within that Quaker group, there were other sects or groups that also practiced mysticism. Not really. Um, the, the sort of star or the, the central character of this whole story is Daniel Leeds. He's the, he'll become the patriarch of the Leeds family in America. And he's a bit of a mystic. He's very influenced by um, German pietism, uh, which was something which comes out uh, around the same time that Quakerism begins to form, but it begins to form in Germany and Austria. And again, these are people who are sort of breakaway, um, uh, a breakaway group who wants to break with mainstream Lutheranism because they thought Lutheranism had become too corporate uh, and too sort of formulaic and not uh, emotional and mystical enough. And one of their one of their great philosophers is this guy Jacob Bohem. Uh, who writes a series of, of books, and Daniel Leeds gets a hold of this and, and reads his work and is very uh, influenced by it and tries to bring a kind of uh, German pietist um, religious flavor to southern New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. And we'll, and we'll run into all sorts of... Um, Resist, resistance from. It. If you want to know the source of Jersey Devil legend, that's where that's where it is. This sort of clashing of German Pietism and Quakerism and Anglicanism in the New World. 
Yeah. And, and I know that sounds really odd that somehow that could lead to the monster, but yet you make the case very well. So let's, let's move the story forward a little bit. Um, so the first generation of leads, uh, is basically at uh, not war, but they're in conflict with the Quakers. So, right, right. Well, um, Daniel Leeds is actually born in England in Leeds, England, and his family, uh, around the mid 16, 16- 70s uh, decide to leave England and they convert to becoming Quakers and they decide to leave England and come to America to sort of seek their fortune, find their futures. And um, they arrive in around 1676, 77. Um, they go first to New York, which was a fairly common thing. People coming from England and Europe would wind up in, in New York for a little while and then sort of head off to wherever they were going. And so the, because there's already an established Quaker community in southern New Jersey, in the Pine Barrens, the Leeds family decides, well, that's where we'll go, because uh, we'll be amongst friends, uh, both figuratively and literally. And so Daniel Leeds, like 25, when they come over. And so he wants to, he's a devout Quaker, and he wants to be part of the religious life, and he does what everyone does is you join the local uh, meeting, and you donate some money, and you become part of your society, and you buy some land, and, uh, you know, you become part of the world you're moving into. And then things go wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because Leeds is an interesting character. I, I've been desperately digging for information, biographical information on him back in England, because like I said, he doesn't come over as a child, but he comes over as a young man. Um, and I, I've been following some some uh, strands, uh, uh, strands over there, but I haven't really been able to put together his early life in England just yet. Uh, but by the time he comes here, he's already filled with this kind of ecstatic notion. He's already had several visions of Jesus. Uh, he, you know, he, he's seen these kind of mystical, um, images and he's, he's taking on this kind of mystical flavor of, of Quakerism. And that really doesn't sit well with his Quaker neighbors who are very sort of, oh, black and white and right down the middle. And despite the fact that they're breaking away from the Anglican world, they're still fairly conservative. They're, they're, they're still fairly, uh, no nonsense in their Christianity. And along comes this guy, Leeds, who's talking about visions and pietism. And Leeds is a guy who is very interested in the mystical aspect of Christianity. And coupling with that, this kind of urge, as people like this often have, to, to tell people, to tell others what he's up to. And so in 1687, he decides to start publishing an almanac. Which Which, now, almanacs were the that that century's version of Twitter, right? Yeah, they were social media. They were (laughs) they were meant and at at their core, uh, an almanac was meant to be a uh, a handbook for farmers, because what you did was you you calculate using astronomy and mathematics, you would calculate and astrology, you would calculate. for a whole year, when the sun was going to come up, when the sun was going to go down, when winter would start, you know, all this sort of thing, because in an agrarian community, uh, you need to know this stuff for, for sure survival. And when the almanacs start being published in England, very quickly they become more than just 
these lists of when the sun's going to go up and come down. And uh, Almanac publishers start including little stories and jokes and uh, all sorts of information. And so Leeds builds his Almanac around that model. Uh, and he uh, starts putting into there things about medical astrology and you know, really quite tame. Um, in the in the in the one article that uh, that I that I sent you the copy of, I refer to him as a as a Christian occultist, and that's because and he's not, but he's not a dark magician. Uh, there were quite a few people then and still to this day who see the occult as a way of gaining greater insight into Christianity. They don't see it as a kind of dark art at all. But if you if you are a straight uh, forward mainstream Christian, you hear the word occult, you go crazy because you think, oh my God, they're devil worshippers, they're doing this, they're doing that. And so uh, he gets into quite a bit of trouble with his neighbors over publishing this almanac because they think it's too occult and astrological. And and and, and I believe you wrote that they actually had uh, a problem with him trying to predict the weather. Yeah, because the prediction is thought of as this kind of negative thing. Uh, to do that, you shouldn't be doing these. It's like things. a prophecy, or right, uh, yeah, right. Gotcha. Yeah, the Quakers had some issues with prophecy. But um, when I think about American uh, almanacs, uh, the Leeds family almanac is not the one that comes to mind. No, it does not. Yeah. So, how, how tell us about that? Because the the whole story of his son and and the relationship he had with uh, Ben Franklin, I found fascinating. Right. Well, there's there's, there's a whole thing that goes on. Um, the, the Quakers actually uh, buy up all the copies of his almanac, first issue of it, and burn it because they think it's so bad. And uh, he will not be deterred, and he just keeps on going. Uh, Leeds is very lucky because the, the sort of the cosmic gears turn in just the right way because a few years after he arrives, um, William Bradford shows up. And William Bradford goes down in American history as one of the first uh, major printers to come to the New World. He brings a printing press with him from England, and they hit it off, and they become friends. And so Bradford's like, "Well, I'll just keep, I'll keep publishing this. Um, I'm not going to stop." And so the the Leeds Almanac becomes rather popular, despite the Quaker fathers being upset with it. And then in 1688, uh, Leeds publishes a book. Uh, in fact, the first book ever published in New Jersey. Uh, that's one of the things that is really so interesting about this: that the Leeds family are pioneers. Uh, not just in New Jersey history, but in colonial American history. Uh, pioneers uh, as religious activists, as writers, as publishers. The Leeds Almanac is the first Almanac ever published in New Jersey. Not the first in America, but the first in New Jersey. And in 1688, he writes a book called The Temple of Wisdom, where he tries to explain all this pietist um, and mystical thought to his neighbors, and that goes down even worse than the, the <laughs> Almanac did. Uh, they ban his book. The Quaker Fathers of New Jersey ban his book. They publicly uh, refer to Daniel Eads as evil for what he's doing, and this causes Leeds to quit Quakerism in disgust, and rather than just walk away from them, he decides to become a Quaker critic, and he starts publishing books, uh, sort of attack, what we would say call attack literature, uh, Claiming that the Quakers are bad people and they and they steal from merchants and they're they're adulterous and all these horrible things and this goes on for some years uh, and it's it, it's sort of the first scandal mongering 
in American history to rival any any of the stuff that goes on today in in, in the media. Um, and what happens is years go by, and around oh seventeen fourteen, Daniel Lee decides to retire, and he turns the uh, almanac over to his son Titan Leeds. He's, he's got a bunch of kids. Uh, Daniel Leeds uh, does. Um, his wives don't do well. All of his wives die early, except for one, uh, Jane. She has like eight kids, uh, and then drops dead after the after after that. Um, Daniel Leeds turns the almanac over to his his youngest son Titan Leeds. This is around 1714. And Titan isn't quite the anti-Quaker that his father is. He's just happy to keep publishing the almanac. Um, Titan Leeds is a, an astronomer. He's a mathematician. And around about, oh, 1733, he gets into an almanac feud. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. And he gets into an almanac feud with none other than Ben Franklin, uh, because this this is early on in Franklin's career. And the Leeds Almanac is the most popular one in New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. And uh, Franklin wants to start uh, an almanac of his own because he knows it's lucrative. He can make money off of these things. They're very popular. They sell. They're they're cheap to make, and they sell very well. And so he is going to do Poor Richard's Almanac. Uh, he creates this character, which he actually steals from a from a London almanac, uh, Richard Saunders, poor Richard Saunders. And in the very first issue, Franklin says, in, in speaking through the voice of, of Richard Saunders, poor Richard, he says, "My friend Titan Leeds, I have I have calculated according to astrology, and Titan Leeds is going to die within the year." And he even gives the date, and. Of course, the date comes and goes, and Titan Leeds doesn't die. And so Titan Leeds says, oh, this Franklin, he's a fool, he's a liar. And Franklin never misses a beat. He keeps a straight face, and he says, no, um, Titan Leeds did die. And this person who is calling me all these horrible names is the ghost of Titan Leeds. And this just 
makes Titan leaves crazy, but there's nothing he can do about it. He, you know, he fumes in public about this crazy Franklin, and Franklin just keeps a straight face and says, well, you know, my, my old friend Titan, he's gone, but uh, this, this person running around isn't really a person. He's, he's a sorcerer risen from the dead. And all Titan leaves can do is kind of fume and not react well. Everybody gets the joke. He doesn't. Yeah. Uh, but what happens is that Franklin's ploy works. Poor Richard's almanac becomes the most famous in American history, and the Titan uh, and the Leeds almanac is completely forgotten. I think this the story amuses me on a couple of levels. Not you know obviously. Uh, Franklin's reputation is one that, you know, you learn about in elementary school. And then as you get older, you learn, whoa, this was quite an interesting person on a lot of levels. And yeah, far more complex than most people give him credit for. Oh, yeah, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> so so I've, I've read a lot of his writing and some of it's quite uh, bawdy. Yeah, so, so. yeah, to say the least. <laughs> so, um, was like, if, you know, if you were, I always tell my students, I said, you know, if, if I could meet any of the founding fathers, it's got to be Franklin. Yeah, he would be you know, great be to me. He loved to drink. He loved to, you know, pinch women's behinds. He loved a good meal. Uh, you know, at a party, he'd be the first guy with a lampshade on his head saying, I love you guys. Uh, you know, he was very modern. Uh, he was very yeah, modern. Yeah. I, I think he'd fit right in for sure. Uh, the other thing that amuses me is Richard Saunders. The name itself is uh, also the name of a very prominent Australian skeptic. Uh, who, oh really? Yeah, he has a podcast called The Skeptic Zone, and uh, so every time I would read that name while I was reading your work, I kept, mm-hmm. <laughs> I kept thinking about the Richard I know. So that's just kind of amusing. But so that happens, and that sort of destroys Leeds' reputation, right? In that time period, right? Because well, by the time of the Revolution, what you have is this situation: you have Daniel Leeds, who you know, prominent citizen, publisher religious activist in the middle of lots of things, um, being called evil and Satan's harbinger by the, the Quaker majority. Then his son comes along, who is accused of being a ghost and a sorcerer resurrected from the grave. So by the time of the, the revolution, the Leeds devil is this figure. It's not a monster. It's a figure of political ridicule because the Leeds family has made the rather unfortunate choice of siding with the empire. Whoops. One of, one of the political things that Daniel Leeds is involved with is in, see, up until 1700, uh, what is today called New Jersey, originally called Novo Caesarea, uh, was actually two Jerseys, East Jersey and West Jersey. Uh, and you'll still sometimes, people will still refer to the Jerseys. Uh, that's because it was basically split into the East Jersey sort of centered uh, wrapped around New York and West Jersey kind of wrapped around Philadelphia. But in 1701, the Queen of England decides to turn the Jerseys into a royal colony and to combine East and West Jersey into a single royal colony called New Jersey. And their first governor is this guy, Lord Cornbury, Edward Hyde. And he goes down uh, in history as one of the most despised governors uh, in New Jersey history. Now, if you know anything about New Jersey history, that's no mean feat. <laughs> uh, still. And, uh, he's infamous for being a kind of spendthrift who, you know, would take, raise taxes and use taxes for his own, his own, uh, his own pleasures. And even more interesting, he was accused of being a cross-dresser. 
Yeah, that's a strange accusation. Yeah, well, it was, it, but we we now know that both of those accusations of him being uh, politically corrupt and a crossdresser were slanders uh, told about him by anti-government pundits at the time. Uh, there's a famous portrait, which still to this day hangs in the New York Historical Society. <laughs> this very strange portrait of a person in kind of flowery blue dress, colonial era dress. Uh, and your first thought when you look at it is that's either uh, a really feminine guy or a really ugly woman. And it supposedly was a portrait of Lord Cornbury in drag. But we now know that it, 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 it's not of him, it's not of him at all. Uh, it's in fact the painting has no connection to the to Hyde uh, whatsoever. Again, these were slanders uh, put up against him. And Leeds was one of Cornbury's counselors. So as far as and, and Cornbury was an anti Quaker uh, as well. And so you have all these things stacking up against the Leeds family. Uh, they're anti-Quakers, they're pro-British, they're pro-monarchy, um, you know, and the revolution comes along. So the, the concept of the Leeds devil is is meant uh, to be like a political insult. Wow. So how does it transform from being a political insult to a winged monster? Where did, how does that happen? Right. Well, that happens very subtly. By the early 19th century... Uh, you know, the revolution's over, and now we enter what uh, historians, American historians, refer to as the early republic, uh, early 19th century, early 1800s. By then, the Leeds devil legend is, is all but extinct. Um, the Leeds family is still there, but they're not really movers and shakers anymore. And uh, it just becomes this kind of local curiosity that no one believes in and nobody even talks about or even knows about for the most part. Then, at the end of the 19th century, something interesting starts happening. In and around the sort of Burlington, Atlantic City area, uh, and the Leeds Point, uh, there's still a, a, a location in New Jersey called Leeds Point, which was owned by the Leeds family. It was actually a sur- surveyed by Daniel Leeds, and he handed it down to his sons as a kind of family seat, and it's still called uh, Leeds Point. And that's the spot that most people associate with the Jersey Devil. Uh, most of these uh, ghost hunter types, when they want to go look for the Jersey Devil, they, they they head down to Leeds Point and then stumble around in the woods for a while and find nothing. As one does. Um, <laughs> but, anywho, uh, so by the end of the 19th century, reports start coming out of strange footprints in the snow. And there is a dime museum in Philadelphia called the Ninth and Arch Street Dime Museum, which was fairly popular. Um, it would have weird animal acts and, you know, two-headed babies in jars. Um, the the then-proprietor, a guy named Charles Bradenbaugh, is actually sort of a pioneer. He's one of the first people to start showing uh, movies publicly and charging people to, to, to come in and see movies. Um, and he hears about this, and his press agent is a guy named Norman Jeffries, who, when he hears these stories about uh, the footprints, and then he starts hearing these old legends about the Leeds Devil, the light bulb goes off over his head and he thinks, jackpot. And he starts planting stories about a monster that wanders around in the woods called the Leeds Devil, and it's the Leeds Devil which is leaving all these footprints. And he even goes so far as to mount ghost hunting expeditions. 
and at one point they decide, this is about 1905, 1909, they say, well, we have to have something to show people because if we can put something in a cage and stick the cage in the museum, uh, we can charge people to come in and look at it. So they get a guy from Albany, New York, who has a kangaroo. They rent the kangaroo, they paint stripes on the kangaroo, and then attach little wings to the kangaroo's back, and they stick it in a cage and put it on stage, and then they charge people to come in to look at it. And they have a little kid sitting behind the curtain with a long stick with a nail in it. And every time a group of rubes comes in, the little kid jabs the poor kangaroo with the nail, and that, of course, makes the kangaroo start yelping and jumping around, and that scares people, and now you have a, an actual Leeds devil. And so this becomes kind of popular. Stories about it are printed, uh, reprinted as far away as Michigan and Oregon. Uh, and what also is now beginning to happen is that while most people still are using the old term Leeds devil, what you're now starting to see is the term Jersey devil. Interesting. And and it just goes from there. Now people start saying, "Oh yes, I." You know, every time someone goes out to their barn in the backyard and the lawnmower has been moved or the door has been left open, oh my God, it's the Jersey Devil's been here. Wow! And from there, it just sort of snowballs to the point uh, today where you know people think it's an actual monster running around the woods. Yeah, you know, I think your background in um, in both studying cryptozoology and uh, evolution, um, you probably are aware of the number of uh, um, creationist-based cryptozoological research groups. There oh, are. sure. Fascinating area. Yeah. It, what, what I find interesting is if, if they wanted to find a, a monster that was going to um, actually be a problem for evolution, it, the Jersey Devil is a fantastic one because right. it doesn't really conform to uh, any of the known families of, of animals because it has – you know, four limbs plus wings. Plus the wings, right? Yeah, which means we have to have two rib cages. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, well, I, I always tell people, you know, if you, if you want to know what the Jersey Devil looks like, just, just imagine if Pegasus went over to the dark side. Yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. Very skinny. There's some great pictures out there or drawings of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, but people, uh, have, have turned what is essentially, uh, I guess a propaganda creature into a folklore creature and now right. into a, uh, I guess some people actually think is a real animal. And I, I've, I've seen a lot of stories about different animals that might have caused the Jersey devil, but th- that's kind of trying to fit, um, a, 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 a plausible natural world explanation for something that really doesn't need one. Right. Right. Um, so it's, it begins as a political scapegoat and then it turns into a monster. Yeah, in fact, I, I like the way in your article you talked about, well, you know, what could have been the, the basis for this? Did the Leeds family actually have a lot of kids? Did they have a, uh, a, a, a birth that was, uh, a deformity, uh, birth? Right. Well, that's a, that, that's a, a, a legitimate question to ask. And I ask the same thing because I've, I've done work on, um, I've researched and I've, I've written on, on human monsters in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And a lot of these were genuine, uh, what then were being called monstrous births. That's considered politically incorrect now. We say, uh, you know, birth defects. Um, so what I did was, and again, this is, this is one of the things that to all my cryptozoology friends out there and future cryptozoologists who are 
listening to this or will listen to this in the future, you need to learn how to do research. Most of these monsters you will find in libraries, not out in the woods. And one of the things that, as I said before, one of the first things a historian does when they research a topic like this is we go look for the paperwork, we go look for the documentation, we go look for the text. So I said, well, if this thing is based on some actual uh, monstrous birth that occurred in the Pine Barren, there would have to be some sort of record of it somewhere. So I began skimming through the collections of doctor records, some of which go back to the colonial era, and I didn't find anything about uh, a monstrous birth. Now, that doesn't mean none happened. They're, they're, those records may have been lost, um, but what I found, the more convincing evidence I found was this political angle rather than an actual biological angle. Yes, exactly. And and it's one of those things where there may be a plausible natural explanation, but you actually have to go back and say, wait a minute, did it really even happen? You know? Right. And um, I, I think that's a really important lesson to learn uh, when you're going to be a researcher. Or, you know, and, and so as you were researching the case, did you go through some of the uh, paranormal and cryptozoological literature? And was any of that helpful? No, it really wasn't. Um, there's a there's tons of stuff out there online and in print um, about the Jersey Devil, and, and most of it is, it, it's really not good. Um, it's Most of it is just rehashing stuff that's been said a million times without ever checking, um, including some people who should know better. Um, I'm always disappointed by uh, by the quality of most writing on monster legends that's out there uh, because I think part of the problem is monster hunters like ghost hunters um, I have a lot of respect for cryptozoologists I know some I, I know a lot of cryptozoologists some of them are really just fantastic and they don't deserve the bad reputation that that they're that they're less skillful peers uh, get them to be tarred with but most cryptozoologists don't really know how to do research they are attracted to the notion of running around the woods finding a biological entity and throwing a net over it uh, but that hasn't worked ever yeah <laughs> uh, it really hasn't um, these things are these things are so interesting and they should be uh, I, I I said this before in, in, in my writings and in op-ed pieces and things that I, I think it's important that people do go out there looking for things because that's how you find stuff um, but they need to go out there with some kind of training you know learn how to do research learn what a historian does learn what an anthropologist does um, and you'll you'll get much better results there yeah that, that's an excellent point and the um we talk on, on Monster Talk a lot about going back to case zero and trying to find out where the first claims come from. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a part of the same process. And, and and again, I agree with you as well. There are some really solid researchers out there working on cryptozoology. And then there's, unfortunately, because of the nature of uh, there's no certification, there's no really, you don't have to have any qualifications to become involved. There's a lot of people who fancy themselves and call themselves cryptozoologists and sort of sully the name and cause it to become, uh, you know, a pseudoscience. Right. Which, uh, you know, any science, and I think that's probably why there are other terms that scientists like to use because they don't want to call themselves that. Ethnobiology. Yeah, see, I, don't, I don't really see, and this is going to sound funny coming from someone like me, but I don't really see cryptozoology as a pseudoscience. Go on. 
<laughs> well, you know, you're what what is what is the at the at, at its core what is the meaning of science is to pursue the unknown is to look for figure out how the universe works yeah it, um, isn't isn't it the the issue of whether or not they're using plausible scientific methodology to pursue yeah, that? well, yeah. that's where it becomes a little dicey you know a, a, a temperature gauge is is absolutely no help in finding ghosts i would agree uh, uh you know all the infrared cameras in the world have not have yet to, sh- to, to show us bigfoot uh it's it, it, it at this point, it just seems a useless exercise. And there's so much potential in, in cryptozoology. And I think that's what frustrates me about it. Uh, if you're out there in the woods running around chasing something, uh, like the Jersey Devil even, um, if you have some scientific training, if you have some historical training, you're out there in the field, you could be learning things about the ecology of the Pine Barrens, for example. Uh, which could be really useful. Uh, you could learn about the the migration habits of animals in the Pacific Northwest while you're looking for Bigfoot, and you could actually make contributions. In the in the in the book that I wrote recently, which is now uh, this month is out in paperback. Oh, awesome! Sasquatch. Does that have a um um a lower uh, cover price? Yes, it does. Fantastic. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, one of the things I talk about is how. You know this relationship between professionals and amateurs, which has a long tradition, a long and and healthy and revered tradition in science and in history of amateurs doing things. It's, being an amateur is not in and of itself the problem. Um, a lot of a, a lot of the greatest uh, discoveries in science and history have been done by amateurs. I mean, Charles Darwin was an amateur. He was not a professional scientist. Uh, you know, to show just one example. Uh, but the the early biologists, early geologists, early uh, ornithologists, while they were running around searching for various things, they created sciences. They created techniques. They created philosophies of how of how you do science. Uh, and the cryptozoologists really have not contributed uh, anything to the scientific method. Yeah, that's sad but true. But, you know, which is, which is unfortunate. Well, and I, I think, I mean, it, I think cryptozoology as a field can, can have a really positive impact. Right. Of as course. far as you know, fostering a sense of wonder, but then mm-hmm. you, you have to, um, I think, and I don't want to see, this is not meant as an insult, but you need to eventually get the maturity to realize there are uh, better methodologies for doing investigations and perhaps better topics to work on. Right. And, uh, running around the woods with infrared, cra- uh, infrared camera, uh, saying there are scratches about every yeah. time you hear a twig snap, <laughs> it's not helping. No, no, I, I, I would agree. Although, I, you know, I, there's the uh, those guys are on TV and they're stars. So um, that's um, it, it has some cultural place, you know, but I don't think it has a place in science. Right. So, um, well, they're laughing all the way to the bank. So who am I? Right. Exactly. <laughs> So, so now that you've uh, killed the Jersey Devil, thanks a lot. Um, what are you working on next? Well, the project I've been working on, um, which I sort of put aside to do this Jersey Devil thing, because I'm working on a book-length version of it uh, with a colleague of mine at Kane, um, Dr. Frank J. Esposito. And um, but the but the thing I was working on before that, and which I'm hoping to get back to, is tentatively titled Darwin and the Monsters. 
And it's a kind of wide-ranging synthetic study of the engagement with monstrous creatures, both real and imagined, that's been going on since Aristotle, and how that, you know, up until recently, you know, when we think about cryptozoology today, most people immediately think, oh, that's just fringe crackpot stuff. But up until the mid-19th century, monster studies was a part of mainstream science. Everyone thought this was important. Um, everyone from Darwin back to Aristotle thought that monstrous creatures were real and that if you studied them, you could learn a lot about generation, you could learn about heredity, and eventually you could learn about the mechanics of evolution. And so that's what I'm working on, the, the study of the story of how um, the search for monsters by these all these people down through the ages uh, contributed to modern evolution theory. Neat. That sounds really interesting. I look forward to seeing whatever uh, fruit comes from that research. Well, hopefully it'll be done sooner rather than later. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> well, you know, we, we always like to ask, uh, what's your favorite monster? Uh, has yours changed, or what, what these days, what is your favorite monster? Uh, I think I'm gonna have this. I'm gonna have to stay with werewolves. I don't blame you. I, I can't stop studying them. <laughs> I, I really need to finish up my research. So after I talked to Jay Smith, uh, I, I had this question, which was. Um, why is it, why is it that modern legends of the Beast of Javadon, um, have, um, a character hunting down the beast with a, a silver bullet? It, it doesn't really, uh, it's just unusual because there's actually nothing right. about that in the original. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a product of 20th century cinema. Exactly. So I decided to see if I could find out because he had not actually tracked it down to its uh, point of origin. And, uh, I, I believe I've nailed it, but I haven't mm -hmm. actually written it up into an article yet. So, um, but it was a fascinating bit of research because I went all the way back to, you have to consider, well, if, if the stories of werewolves go back to Greek mythology, well, then you can't really have silver bullets before you have guns. Right. Right. So, and, and, uh, silver really doesn't come into play until much, much later. But the origin of the magic silver bullet, I found to be just as fascinating as trying to track down where it came into play in the Javadon legend. And, well, uh, within within medical astrology, uh, silver was seen as a, an elixir. It was. It was. So it, it may have come from that. That may be the origins of it. Um, maybe. But I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> okay, I'll shut up. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, that you know actually. All historians. Well, you, you know what's going to happen is 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 it's going to end up having to be two different articles because I found so much research on the magical properties of silver, mm -hmm. uh, and then I was trying to just from uh, my personal interest, you know, there is this whole um, pseudoscience around silver as a, a medicinal agent, and people take colloidal silver. And which doesn't seem to have any real medical benefits, except that if you overdose on it or, or a dose over time, you'll turn your skin permanently blue and look like a Smurf. Right. It's, it's toxic. It is. Large doses. It is. And so, um, you have to like differentiate between the real world antibacterial properties of silver and the sort of mystical, magical properties of silver. And, right. and, that's tricky stuff because mm -hmm. silver does actually have antimicrobial properties in certain forms. If it's right. like, if it's like, um, they use it in nanoparticles with an ionic charge and then it can actually kill bacteria. Right. 
but that's not what the mystics and new agers are saying it does. And that's not the way they're applying it. Right. And so, um, that really has enough material to be its own whole research project and its own, uh, article as well. Well, we could do a whole show on, uh, on alchemy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love alchemy. We did one on the homunculus and, and touched mm-hmm. on that a good bit. Um, I actually teach a course on the history of alchemy. Yeah. I think you may have actually helped me get in touch with the right person for the homunculus. Interview. Right. So that, that turned out to be just fantastic. And I, I do, I, I'm fascinated by alchemy and, and, uh, the medieval ages. And I just, uh, did finish up an interview with a guy named Asa Mittman, who is a, a, for all practical purposes, a monsterologist. It's really fascinating. He, he does a lot of research on the, um, um, the cultural history of, he's an art historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but he really loves monsters and has written and collected a lot of essays on, on the role of monsters in culture. And yeah, uh, but this is, uh, such a fun topic and the silver and the, in the werewolves, good stuff. Thanks for visiting with me, Brian. It was really fun to have My you pleasure. on Monster Talk. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. I'm your host, Blake Smith, and you've been listening to Keene University history professor Brian Regal discuss his new research on the true history of the Jersey Devil. A version of Brian's research will be in an upcoming issue of Skeptical Inquirer magazine, and the longer but very enjoyable peer-reviewed full version of his research will be appearing in an upcoming issue of the journal New Jersey History. I would encourage you to seek out both. They're both easier to find than the Jersey Devil. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself, my guests, and of course my alien overlords. These opinions are not necessarily those of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. And remember, you can't have an opinion without an onion and pie. If you enjoy Monster Talk, please take the time to go door-to-door in your city and tell everyone that they should subscribe. It only takes a few weeks and you'll meet new friends and catch new diseases. But if you don't have time for that, please give us a review on iTunes and share links to the show via social media. And if you hate Monster Talk, please send me a really long letter with your suggested changes and some Powerball tickets. You never know. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. You know that, okay, that's so funny that you said that. I was reading a book the other day and they said that uh, the real phrase Liberace used to say was, I'm crying all the way to the bank, Mm -hmm. which, which makes more sense. But I always say laughing all the way to the bank, too. I don't know why.